0: Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Parago. Here is a place where we um, dive into the intersection of theology and worship. Today, I'm so delighted to have Reverend Dr. Glenn Packiam with me. Glenn has his doctorate of theology and ministry from Durham University in the UK, and he's an associate pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. Glenn's also a senior fellow at the Barna Group and a, a visiting fellow at St. John's College at Durham University. His newest book is The Resilient Pastor. Um, and also one of the books we're going to jump into today on the podcast is around worship. That book's called Worship and the World to Come. Oh, Glenn, what a treat to, uh, yeah, to be able to hang out with you again. It's been It's been a minute.
1: Yeah, Jeremy, always good to talk to you, man, whether it's London or uh, online or over Thai food, always good to talk to you.
0: Come on. I think one of my first times meeting you was in London, outside HTB. You oh, were giving Christ. a lecture there. <laughs> oh, and I think what I've what I've loved about you and kind of the focus of, of this discussion today is about your integration, particularly with mm. charismatic practices of worship and mm. also the theology, which sometimes gets pushed to the side or or maybe underemphasized. Yeah. Um what's just just so people can get to know you what's what's a memorable moment in corporate worship that you've you've had in your life? You've been a worship oh, pastor, man. you've <laughs> written songs, you're a theologian, <laughs> pastor. No, l- listen Jeremy, I I grew up so I grew up in Malaysia
1: and that's where I'm from and and i remember you know many many moments deep in worship as a young person you know actually even as a child i I remember being eight years old at like a kids camp that our church did and a missionary from america was talking and telling stories and then she sang this old chorus um, uh, come O lord and overflow us with your love and i just remember just like weeping you know experiencing the presence of god had, had lots of moments like that as a teenager, um, you know, very, very um, accustomed to an expectation that when we sing, uh, we're not just going through the motions of something, we're encountering a living God. Um, and then, of course, I, I went to Oral Roberts University for my college years. And man, I mean, chapels were a bit tight, you know, 15 minutes, two or three songs. But we had these Sunday night kind of campus church uh, moments. And I have these distinct memories of sitting at the piano and service would be over. They'd start to dim the lights. And I just keep playing and singing, and you know, in in some circles they'll be familiar with this phrase. But a little bit of a song of the Lord. I know you're yeah. familiar with that, you know, where you just kind of spontaneously—it's almost like you're singing a psalm, uh, if you will, uh, uh, from your the depths to the Lord, and and so some profound uh, experiences there. But there's also some devotional ones, you know, in in my uh, in many years. I, I think of these moments in my college years, but but they continued throughout where um for me you know seeking the lord and pouring out my soul often has looked like uh, grabbing a guitar and sitting in a dark room somewhere or finding a piano practice room at O.R.U. you know and going down the hall turning off the lights and just you know um so music and experiencing the presence of god has been very intimately connected for me from an early age
0: i i know you're, you're a theologian you've done a doctoral degree at durham Um, I think the first time we met we were talking about kind of the lack of um, charismatic theologians of worship or Pentecostal liturgical theologians. Why do you think um, theology and worship, particularly in that stream, have have been divided or divorced or not so convergent?
1: You know, there's there's probably some good reasons for this that others can attest to with greater uh, accuracy. Yeah. My hunch is the following. I, uh, w- one of the reasons, I think, is seminaries, especially in the U.S., were created to prepare people for ordination in denominational churches. I mean, that's just sort of part of the history. You know, the MDiv was created uh, for Presbyterian uh, ordinations and Methodist ordinations and all of that. And so so you kind of have this—it's not a bias. It's more just a a, a history of— that was the trajectory. So seminaries are oriented towards denominations, which in turn are oriented towards liturgical worship. Um, and then correspondingly, you kind of have this the Pentecostal and charismatic renewal movements from which came one of the streams of of contemporary worship. You and I, our mutual friend uh, Lester Ruth, you know, his big new book on the history of contemporary worship, of history of praise and worship, is such an important book because, and I'll just say one of his kind of core thesis statements, is people often talk about the, the contemporary worship movement, and they trace it back to kind of the Jesus movement or evangelism and that sort of yeah. impulse, and that, and that's true, but there's this whole other impulse which was more about uh, experiencing the Spirit or charismatic renewal, and that, he, he you know, it's, it's the latter rain movement is the kind of name for that movement, and, and Lester demonstrates that that movement was not very, um, they didn't write down a lot of things. It's more of an oral history. It's more of an oral tradition, if you will, of teaching yeah. and speaking. So, so you kind of have these two things. You have the formal education structures that are very tied in with denominations, which are therefore liturgical. And then you have the, the sort of wild charismatic Pentecostal worship streams that are coming up in the 60s and 70s or whatever, 80s. And they're not uh, text-based. They're not writing down manuals and instructions. And if they are, they're, they're shorter. And so I think because of that, it, those two worlds kind of got separated. And people would look at charismatic worship or contemporary worship, the the part of contemporary worship that came from that, and they would say, "Oh, that's not theological, or that's not academic," you know, and you know maybe to some degree they're right but on the flip side the other folks would look at the seminary stuff and be like oh that's just you know dead religion or whatever cemetery cemetery not seminary right yeah and and i i think jeremy that's changing with with this generation and, and and maybe a little bit before but those divisions are not as impermeable as they used to be you know and i I think i think there's people like you and others who are trying to say hey 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 we care we need the biblical theology and we want the life of the spirit and we want a resource from these ancient traditions and could there be this fusion of of all three sort of streams
0: yeah no i love that and i love first talking to you probably 10 years ago here hearing about that in your own life and research i think too like those who study Christian worship as you said like the those scholars that have been writing about it you know before maybe the last 5 to 10 years were liturgical theologians who were just critiquing charismatic worship and broader yeah. evangelical worship for what it wasn't doing so right um they're there wasn't a pastoral prayer, so that that means there's no prayer in in, chariz- or in, yeah, in charismatic churches. And I remember sitting with with one of those theologians, you know, 15 years ago, and kind of saying, "No, we actually pray for like three hours on Wednesday night for all <laughs> for all the pastoral issues and yeah. everybody's needs, and go through the list and and then listen and wait on the Spirit." Mm-hmm. And so I think there was, yeah, there's been a placement of denominational structures, like you said, or expectations on these um, services of this massive global movement, too. Like this this isn't a small movement, the Charismatic Pentecostal movement is millions upon millions. I guess some of your own research, what do you think are some of the unique contributions of this stream of Charismatic worship?
1: Yeah you're and you're right it is millions and millions and 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 people who have studied this i'm thinking of Amos Young and and Monique Ingalls and even Tanya Riches has done some writing on this uh, it's hard to nail down the, in, the the impact of charismatic theology because again it doesn't move strictly within denominational structures you you might find not just charismatic theology, but sometimes what I refer to as charismatic sensibilities. Yeah, you yeah. know, the the sense of, oh, uh, here's how we we welcome the Spirit, and in, in the, there's a particular es- aesthetic and sensibility that goes along with it. I mean, oh, look, th- that, those are big words, and aesthetic, or what do I mean by that? I mean, honestly, Jeremy, it's like, hey, let's have a keyboard player play under this prayer yeah. so that this can feel right, you know? I yeah. mean, those are charismatic instincts, kind of. Um, but I, I think one of the great contributions of that um, stream or that movement is the uh, the awareness that God is present and he's a speaking God. He's an active God, and he's a near uh, God. He's a God who's near. Um, that that um, it, it is really a game changer even even though, of course, what comes with it is, the excess, or maybe the, the temptation to manipulate or manufacture the sense of God speaking or working, uh, that's surely the case. Um, but I, I think its its gift is to say, you know, when we get together, and we sing these songs. Like we're not just it's not just us singing the the stuff to God. Like God is
0: in the building, God is in the room. You know, yeah. I love that picture, and I think I I remember yeah processing it with friends uh, recently, like they were really pushing the kind of Robert Weber's view to proclaim God's story and enact Mm -hmm. God's story. And I shout amen to that in our songs, our prayers, our sermons, our our day-to-day life, that we don't just proclaim our individual story, but we proclaim the big cosmic story. But I think when I think about charismatics, they don't just proclaim that story. They want that story to break in right now. And so we don't want to talk about God's salvation as we walk around Jericho. We're going to sing it, you know, do it again, Lord, do it again right now in our midst. And I think so, so many of those theologians have critiqued it because they've only looked at maybe the lyrics of certain songs instead of the the prayers the prophetic words the kind of setup the whole context which is as you're saying an expect expectation that god's not active just in the past or in the future he's Mm -hmm. he's here right now ready to do the same stuff he's always been doing
1: (laughs) man i love that i love the the link with the story idea like yeah, we we actually believe the story's continuing uh, yeah. right here, not not in the sense that the Bible, you know, the Bible's a fixed can, closed can, and all of that, but just that same God is still active in it. I, I love I love the way you said that. That's great.
0: You you talk about in 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 one of your new books that's that's on worship, that's drawing from your your thesis. I've got it sitting here. Worship in the world to come. That chapter one, you I think you kind of unpack a couple different paradigms of worship, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. one that I think that resonates most with the charismatic stream is this encounter paradigm. Yeah. When you yeah. use that term, like, what do you mean?
1: <laughs> yeah, so the three paradigms are mission, formation, and encounter, and you could, you could kind of, you know, the, 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 these paradigms are sort of a hypothesis and, and you could suggest that they've emerged from certain traditions. So that mission paradigm, the idea that when we gather, we're always oriented toward the, the seeker or the lost person and you were driving toward a conversion moment or an altar call. I mean, that is kind of the general American evangelical impulse. And it goes as far back as the Second Great Awakening, you know, Charles Finney and all of that. So you can kind of trace that paradigm and where it came from then the 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 formation paradigm tends to be housed within the tradition reform traditions, you know wh- whether that is uh, in all of its many forms, whether that's Anglican or Presbyterian or Baptist. but this this notion that when we gather, we're here to be formed and discipleship is kind of at the center of the gathering. So that shows up as exegetical preaching for maybe the Baptist uh, type um, stream. I'm making broad strokes yeah, here, sure. oh, p- forgive me for that. Um, uh, or it could show up in the in the folks who say, we need to pray these o- old prayers because it keeps us in line with the people yeah. of God for the centuries. All true. Um, and then, but the encounter thing which you mentioned, I, I do think that emerges as a gift from the Paris, uh, Pentecostal charismatic um, uh, stream or tradition, if you'd like, because, again, it, it teaches us to say when we gather, this isn't just... Um, what we are doing, or even what God is doing to us, you know, like so so mission is a little bit of like we are reaching the lost, or you know uh, formation can tend to b- b- bleed into God is shaping us, but encounter is like actually this is dynamic, and so sometimes, you know, you, you mentioned liturgical theologians critiquing the charismatic. I, I've read for a lot of years, like you have, um, li- liturgical theologians will will compare contemporary worship to the Eucharist, to communion. And they'll say, oh, you, you've you just made singing the new sacraments, and this is the place of, you know, uh, where you experience the presence. And they, you know, they say it descriptively, but sometimes a little
0: pejoratively, you know. Music, um, I think Whit, Whitfleet, who's a friend of both of ours, <laughs> says musical transubstantiation yes. is what, is what yes. we're doing. <laughs> yes, yes,
1: yes, where via the song we experience yes. the real presence. And I, I I understand that I, I think I push back about against that in the book because it, that that is a comparison that would be alien to charismatics. We would never think to say, oh, you know what's happening here is this is just like a Catholic mass yeah. where we're encountering God, but instead of bread and wine, it's music and lyrics. Uh, no, they would never talk like that. And I'm a big believer, Jeremy. And my one of my you know research methodology methodological whatever. My, one of my approaches in my <laughs> doctoral work. Is, is the kind of, of qualitative research that takes other people seriously and allows them to, to, to explain what they're doing in their own words, right? So I think when I listen to charismatics, what they think is going on sounds more like a person-to-person encounter. Uh, they're not—they're not comparing it to a Catholic mass or a Eucharist service. They're—they're they're comparing it to a dynamic interaction between two people, and I love that because then we can actually resource from from some other voices who talk about that. You know, uh, Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher, talked about I and Thou, and that—that that our interactions with God is. You know, this technical phrase your subject subject not oh. subject object and and all that means is we we can either approach worship and say i'm going to do this and then god will be moved you know and again c- c- some charismatic worship is a bit like that when i pray god will do when you know? i play so, e minor really loud <laughs> say come holy spirit, come damn. Holy spirit. yeah yeah it, it it turns us into the active dynamic subject and god into this object that then <laughs> reacts. That's not right. But we can also make the other mistake where God is the only dynamic subject and we are the sort of passive object. We are the acted upon, you know, and and charismatic uh, theology at its best is about a subject-subject encounter. It's a subject-subject. It's a person-and-person where we're both moving each other. There's a dynamism to it. And actually, Jeremy, I mean, I think this is what we see in the Old Testament. This is what we see. This is why God weeps when Israel disobeys, and God gets angry when Israel oppresses uh, the, the, the poor, and God rejoices. You know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So there's a dynamic interplay between God and His people in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's what we see in John's Gospel. In that, in particular, these sort of personal encounters between Jesus and individuals, where he's weeping, they're weeping, uh, they're healed. He, you know, there's all these interactions between Jesus that actually help us realize Jesus takes our personhood seriously, and he allows himself to be moved by us, just as he wants us to be moved by him. And then, of course, in the in the New Testament letters, I think that shows up in Paul's theology of the Spirit. So, long answer, but but my way of saying there's actually a biblical basis for this charismatic conviction of a dynamic encounter with God.
0: Well, I think some of the, as, as you were sh- sharing some of that, I mean, even resonances with Liturgical traditions with Anglican traditions, in at least in the words of prayer, that the Lord is here, His Spirit is yeah. with us. Let's yes, lift true. up our hearts to the Lord. Like that's those are relational, dynamic, encounter type words. But I guess maybe there's sometimes not an expectation that God may break in and do something outside of the ordinary or extraordinary or um, be made present and I think this is where some of my yeah current students who don't come from that stream but are drawing from that the the charismatic Pentecostal stream um in the songs they sing and the way they lead. Uh, why do you think it's important to recognize the relational presence of God in corporate worship?
1: Yeah I I, I it's it's interesting to hear you say, you know, students even who haven't come from the stream, they're drawn to it. Yeah. I think there is something really remarkable about um, remembering that God is—love there, there, is at the core of who He is, and if love is at the core of who He is, that means His interaction with His people is not transactional, and it's not an information dump. It's not, as Dallas Willard used to say, it's not behavior modification. You know, there's there's an intimacy, and, and theologians, you know, from the Reformed tradition, will call it union with Christ or participation with Christ— I think that's right, theologically, but um, a friend of, uh, I think, both of ours, Simeon Zal, who's a theology professor at Cambridge, Simeon says, okay, well, but let's go farther than that. Like, how does union with Christ or participation with Christ actually get um expressed in bodies in space and time mm-hmm. and then you say well i guess it does look like emotions and i guess it does look like uh, our, our, you know all of these things and then you have to start talking about the holy spirit in work at work in bodies in space and time and then you're like well that's kind of like what those crazy charismatics are doing they don't have may, may not have all of the theological framework to explain oh. it but what we're trying to do is we're trying to move from abstract and con- concepts uh, union with Christ you know and and to say all right but is there an experiential component of that and again we want to be careful you know of course we're not trying to say that if you never have such and such an experience then you don't have union with Christ no 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 theologians would would, would say there's an ontological dimension to this there's just a, a reality it's just it just is we are in Christ but I would but we would want to press and say, and sometimes
0: that reality gets experienced and we get to actually taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that view of, I mean, it's. it reminds me now being in this new environment, a lot of talk about covenantal theology. And that's about relationship at the core. Yes. It's a <laughs> relational agreement. And so what what does relationship look like throughout the biblical narrative is, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Sometimes God gets angry or he's emotive towards towards his people or vice versa in the midst of, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, horrible atrocities. Israel does have the right to say, God, rend the heavens and come down. This doesn't look right. It's not based on your covenantal promises of what you've promised your people. And so that that dynamic can be so so powerful when embodied or when expressed mm-hmm. in time and space and I th- yeah I think that's mm-hmm. one of that contributions that the the charismatics have mm-hmm. yeah have made um you're, yourself you're you're a unique person Glenn and <laughs> if you didn't know that but <laughs> you're in in your worship um at, particularly at, at the downtown campus at new mm-hmm. life like mm-hmm. from what I've seen I haven't got to visit yet but one day I hope but yeah, there seems to be a, a convergence of streams of kind of yeah word-centered evangelical of charismatic experiential of, of kind of liturgical the Anglican. What mm. what kind of led to this conver? I know that's a whole other podcast, but what, <laughs> what 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 at least initially? What are some of those things that in your own life and ministry um, has led to this convergence of of some of these streams?
1: Well, you know, we've been talking about the gifts of the charismatic movement, but I think what led me to kind of think about the sacramental and even the historical is recognizing the limitations of the charismatic movement. And 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 part of the limitations of it, um, I guess, historically, is it was so outside the lines, even ecclesially. It was outside the lines in terms of which church tradition claims this and, you know, all of that, um, that... that it can sometimes, I'll just name a few of the weaknesses, it can sometimes be personality-driven, you know. So for the listeners who maybe are aware of this, you know, uh, a, a charism is a gift, and the charismatic movement is about the gift of the spirit, but also the gifts of the spirit. And so then what ends up happening without the structure or without any kind of rootedness is it becomes all about the gifted individual. So the the person with the most dramatic Charisms, uh, it, it becomes the 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 leader of the church or the yeah. leader of a movement, and we watched that at New Life. Very gifted founding pastor at New Life, um, you know, you, you gifted in many ways, yeah, um, um, but deeply flawed and and had a very public fracturing of his life, a, you know, failure uh, in late two thousand six, and. And I think for me personally, you know, sort of autobiographically here, I, I it became very quickly not so much about his sin, but very quickly about, okay, where's where's my own heart? What's the condition of my own soul, my own life with God? And so, you know, after that it it was like, man, we we needed to um uh, we needed to think more carefully about about how are uh, how are we structuring worship that is, is it really just set up for another, insert you know a, a new gifted individual and then you know expect things to be different? And so I began to realize, you know what we we need is we need an anchor um, to something older than us. And so these part, in in part, one of the things that drew me to it was the historical tether, the historical tie to say, Actually, we're going to say some prayers, we're going to say some words, we're going to do some actions coming to the Lord's table that goes back a couple thousand years in Christian worship. And we're not going to do it because I said so. We're going to do it because this is what the church has done. So we're sort of submitting ourselves to, to that. So the historical piece of it, but then there, there's also a, 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 to put it this way, a Christological piece, there's a Christ-centered reason to do it. Uh, so I mentioned the, the centering of a, of a gifted individual well, when you look at liturgical practices, it's very conscious about um, putting the focus on Jesus, you know, so you, you go through wor- the movements through word and table, it's the teaching of Jesus, you know, that's why you stand for the gospel reading, and it's the table of Jesus, that's why we, that's the pinnacle, you know, kind of climactic moment of, of the service, and man, I, 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 think, um, I think it's changed our church over the last, 10, 11, 12 years um, of, do, of all of our congregations at New Life practicing weekly communion. Um, we talk about preaching toward the table now, you know, where that is a important part of, of how we think about worship so that in some ways we've de-centered the band and the speaker, you know, the preacher.
0: <gasps> Glenn, how dare you? you're you're both a worship pastor and a a preacher what Uh, well it's because i'm keenly aware of my
1: own ego you know i i'm i and and actually that's when some of the shifts started happening i started preaching weekly at a sunday night service that we started in 2009 and i thought this isn't good this isn't good it can't be about um an individual's gifts this has to be you know i i'll sometimes say jeremy you know the worship team they can get it wrong, uh, the preacher, they can get it wrong, but the Lord's table, that's the moment where we all kind of get out of the way, like John the Baptist, and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes yeah. away the sin of the world. we got to have that moment in the service.
0: For churches, uh, even local churches, pastors, we've, we've had these discussions here in Sioux Center, Iowa about, well, we, we see that value of, of returning to the Lord's table and even having weekly communion, but it takes a lot of time. I mean what 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 did what did you as a community have to maybe drop in order to more fully embrace this yeah, yeah. The, the practice of of weekly communion
1: We did tighten up the song set at the beginning so you kind of I mean practically we shaved off a song at the beginning but we added it at the end so there's a song going while people are coming to receive the elements so there's a bit of a trade-off there uh, it, it went from about 30 minutes of sung worship at the beginning to about 20 minutes of sung worship. And then, you know, initially people are like, well, you, you know, but they, they, they adjust. I think the other thing that dropped off, which we do, it is an ongoing kind of, you know, something to be aware of, is the more typical altar call, like come forward and respond for prayer, not necessarily even salvation, but just anything And i think what we had to kind of switch in our mindset is actually the call to the lord's table is an altar call it's an invitation to come and die and come and receive grace again come and live again but to be fair there are moments when i I have felt man we just want to pray and and minister to people and so we found other ways of, of, of creating those moments. Sometimes it is right after that third worship song, you know, this 18 minute mark, or whatever. <laughs> will come up and say, hey, if, you, if this is you, you know, raise your hand and then you, you're circling around people to pray for them. Or it's at the dismissal of the service. After that, we've all received communion, we've sung, and then we say, hey, look, some of you, the Lord is just starting to do something in your heart and you want to linger in prayer. So we're going to have our ministry team come forward. So there's a formal dismissal, but then it, it you know, it, it can spill over into ministry time. So that works. I mean, there are creative ways to do it without just adding, because you're right. If you just keep adding elements to the service, like, my goodness, we don't, this isn't, you know, in in the West, we can't get away with two hour services here in the West, really. Well, yeah,
0: that's so helpful. I mean, yeah, I think these, these streams, these historic streams are, uh, yeah. When I I think of an example of a church trying to embrace that, (laughs) you guys are, you guys are one of those. And in, in, in some ways, like sharing that, that it, some of that came out of some challenges or pain. I, I This is off script, but knowing, you know, even this week or the last few months, last year or two, so many of, yeah, probably mutual friends of ours that had connections yeah, yeah, with yeah. so many different ministries Sheesh. that have, yeah, been closed down or are in a challenging place because of moral failure or just abuse of power by leadership. Yeah. Like, what would... What would you say to to parishioners, congregation members, in some of those churches or or pastors? You've you've gone through this. You've experienced again in a, a different season, a different space. But what what would you say to those who are really in those those questioning moments of yeah, what happened here?
1: It, it's very disorienting. And again, I mean, it, it is hard not to be drawn to individuals with gifts. Um, I, I don't think that's a carnal thing. I mean, I, th- I think um, probably we could identify moments throughout church history where there are bright lights that, that sort of shine and, 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 we, and we look to them. And, and I think even in the healthiest possible ways, it doesn't mean, oh, we made an idol out of this leader or that. Not necessarily. Um, the, the church tradition has given us this language of the difference between an idol and an icon. You know, an, an idol... Uh, is an end in itself. It's the person that it receives all of our uh, adoration. But an icon is one that through them they, we glorify God, or because of them we glorify God, and, and we see God coming through them. It's that an icon, you know, sort of like stained glass window. You know, the light comes through them, and, and our worship um, to God rises because of them. But even so, even when we 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 admire these leaders as icons, and we go, Oh my goodness, they just make me so grateful to God, and make me believe. Uh, I think it, it can be especially painful for that. Um, I, so I don't want to say that, oh, if we're disappointed, it's because we made an idol out of it. No, not necessarily. Um, but I think it's a reminder that even the best icons are, are fragile and frail, and these are still jars of clay in whom there is this great treasure. And I, I think there's probably a couple of responses, but maybe the first response I know for me was uh, to cling to Jesus, you know, to... to I wrote a book years ago called Secondhand Jesus, and that was my own chronicling of my response to the scandal at New Life, was to recognize the ways that I had subconsciously been living with a bit of a secondhand faith. And not, not like, oh, that's so obvious. I mean, I, I, again, deep relationship with God, all of that. But I think what happens to us is we kind of start to ride on the momentum of a ministry or a church. And and our own contact with Jesus, our own face to face, if you will, is is um, takes a back seat. And so I, I think it, for me the first thing to to address was Jesus, where are you and me? You know, it's a little bit like Peter and Jesus in John twenty one. Do you love me? Like Peter, you know, Jesus is not saying Peter, do, you know, do you love the church? <laughs> Peter, have you given up on the kingdom? You know, uh, Peter, do you believe in the move of God? I mean, Peter's going to do some great miracles in the very next book in our scripture right in acts but it's peter do you love me and i think i think when we're reeling from our own fall or someone else's failure or whatever uh, that's always that restorative question is is jesus asking do you love me and then i think there's it's worth reflecting on on the, the stanley harawas kind of question which is what kind of community makes that kind of character possible? <laughs> so it's, it's not always a one to one, right? But you, it is always worth asking gosh, are there systems, structures, practices, habits that are making these kinds of things more likely than not? Um, and again, that essentially for us at New Life, over the course of several years, it led us to say, how can our worship practices decenter the individual? Uh, how can we have more of a team based preaching team how can we have team based leadership you know all of that
0: so that we don't replicate this uh, system yeah well thanks for sharing yeah and our hearts go out to yeah friends people that are I know. I know. in those situations yeah. it's intense glenn you're someone full of hope though <laughs> and even in the midst of those challenges yeah you've you've come out with a study on worship in the world to come like eschatological hope and mm. christian hope mm. Why in the world, after you've you felt kind of some of the pain of of church life and worship, why would you wow? Why would you choose to look at worship and kind of Christian hope?
1: Well, <laughs> because <laughs> Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I mean, that's that's the answer, Hallelujah. isn't it? I mean, yeah, that's that's um that's why Christians started gathering on the first day of the week. That's why Christians sing because of this fundamental conviction that. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And I I I think, you know, when I started doing the study in my doctoral research on on that how is hope experienced and expressed in contemporary worship services and songs, um, I I had this hunch that we're singing around about the subject of hope, but we're not actually singing directly about it. And, and certainly, I, I had this hunch that we're not connecting the dots between Jesus' resurrection and our own future bodily resurrection. And so, it, it doesn't really produce the kind of robust hope that it could and that it did for early Christians. You know, for for them, it's that 1 Corinthians 15 passage. I think early Christians, that's sort of this foundational connective tissue of, hey, if Jesus is raised, then we too will be raised one day, and 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 that made it so that the, the threat of death and persecution from the Roman Empire it had no power. Um, but for us, you know, we don't live under the, for many Western Christians, we don't live under the, the the threat of of death. Obviously, you and I were thinking now of our friends in Eastern Europe and, and yeah. Ukraine. That's a very uh, pro- profoundly difficult um, situation. But for for us in America, we feel very removed from that. Uh, That's not how we live our daily lives. So so we think of Jesus' resurrection as like, oh, that's cool. So glad that happened. And that just means that my sins are forgiven and like Jesus won in some vague, ambiguous sense. (laughs) And then for our own lives, we're like, I don't know that we think that we need hope as much. We need comfort. We need miracles. We need breakthroughs. But but we don't often think down the road. So one of the things that emerged even in doing this research is comparing our songs that we said brought us hope with the slave spirituals. I mean, if conditions are not good in the present tense, you're going to be looking towards some different alternative future as the slaves were in their spirituals. Um, but for many of our us today, we're not thinking about a, a radically different alternative future. We're thinking about yeah god could you fix one or two things in my life
0: yeah i mean i think there, on one sense there's there may be a need for psychological hope Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe the day-to-day hope i mean depression anxiety on the rise like and, and in one sense when we hear that word hope it may it may not always connect with the future hope that is to come when Christ comes and makes all things new, sets yes. the world right. It's it's more, hey, how can I make it through the day with stress at work, stress at home, um, lack of meaning in my life. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the the modern worship songs are more addressing that type of hope, like yeah. which may be still eschatological, may, but it's fully realized or over-realized or mm-hmm. heaven come down right now so I can feel better about my life and situation and again that's connected with healing it is it's, yeah, it, it, yeah. In, partic- in particular charismatic like having yeah. come down so we can be physically healed sure. and made sure. made new I guess why is it important for us to yeah to both express and experience that that hope that is to come in the in the present moment why i mean it it sounds like a dumb question but it it feels like sometimes we're not we're not singing about it we're not praying about that hope to come i can't remember the last time other than in a a few lectures when we've talked about the end of the age or
1: (laughs) it's it's interesting isn't it because even in say seminary settings it over the you know the decades i guess the, that that category you mentioned eschatology, that what is the end of all things, it really gets relegated to like the final lecture in a in a class of, of system and you're like, yeah, and by the way, and people disagree about what's gonna happen. So end times, blah, 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 Jesus will return, something about new heaven and new earth, maybe that's literal, maybe that's not, you know, and off we go. And and it's really Theologians like Jürgen Moltmann uh, first, who kind of said, "Hang on, eschatology is like connected to Christology. Like, if you believe this about Jesus, you have to believe this about the future of of all things." And actually, that's tied in with our soteriology—what we believe about salvation. Like, what actually is salvation? And so, so if, if you get if you get some of that end game sort of uh, stuff wrong you're actually, it's, it actually exposes that we might have some of our views of Jesus and salvation wrong. So, if I could take a moment and and and, and tease that out a little, flesh that out a little bit. Please. If if Jesus is the Lord and Savior, if He is the Lord of the cosmos, of the universe, then His death and resurrection means that He intends to, He's the rightful King who can put it all together, uh, back uh, renew it. He can rescue it and renew it. He's got the power to save. And so then our view of salvation is, oh, it's not it's not just about this micro-salvation of our sins being forgiven. It's about salvation in a macro sense of God putting His good world back together again, and not just in a restorative way, but in a completion sort of way. You know, like, the, the picture in Scripture is not a going back to Eden. It's a going back to what Eden was meant to move toward. You know, if, if you viewed things as this sort of trajectory and then the, the trajectory was broken, He doesn't take us back to the start. He he gets us to the where it was meant to head to, which is this um, Garden City kind of uh, picture in, in, in Revelation. So Jesus is um, the Messiah, the rightful King and Lord who has the power to conquer all of the forces of death, evil, and sin. And then salvation is God putting His world back together again, and completing it, and and renewing it, making it new. Then, when we think about that, we're like, oh well, then that's the end game. That's the end of the story. The end of the story is new creation and resurrection. And and that that changes everything. I mean, we we could talk for hours probably about this. Like, what is what is resurrection?
0: Uh, how is that different than our current hope? But you know, we'll we'll leave it there for now. Yeah. What? Why do you think we've we've lost? <laughs> maybe lost that. You talked about, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. And again, all throughout Mm. the New Testament, there's this (laughs) groan of Maranatha, like, come Jesus. Like, There's this eschatological expectation. And you see that even in the embodied practices of the disciples who go to the ends of the earth to proclaim this good news. And Mm. like... Again, I don't. We don't need a two thousand year history of no, why we lost yeah. it. But in in your view, maybe flip that. How 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 are you recovering? Yeah. Kind of the expression or the embodiment of of that great Maranatha in in your life and in, in your local church.
1: Pastorally, you know, about ten years ago or so, I had a congregant that lost his wife in a tragic car accident, and I met him at the hospital that night, and we ended up meeting every week for a couple of years, and the first you know, I don't know however many times we met it was mostly tears and silence and co presence and listening. And then it then the questions began to come and, and what you know and for him it was like, look, I've been raised on just like, well, she's in heaven now and he's like, that, that's not enough. And I began to realize this isn't academic. This is pastorally powerful. And the the, the analogy I sometimes give people is Our version of hope without, if it's not resurrection and new creation, our version of hope actually sounds a bit like escape. Like the world's terrible, it's lousy, but when you die you'll go to heaven and and, then it'll be fine. So it either sounds like evacuation or it sounds like compensation. Like, we're getting out of here and God will make it up to me, you know, and it's like, (laughs) gosh, is that it? Like, is that really? And and the illustration is, you know, if, if you have a kid that's being bullied at school, and, you know, you find out about it and you rush over there in your car and rather than confronting the bully, you just say, son, quick, just jump in my car and get out of here. Let's go Okay, let's go get ice cream and forget all about this. So it's an escape and it's make it up to you. It's evacuation and compensation. Like, I don't know how you feel good about that, you know. Um, but what Jesus does and what the scriptures say that happened at Easter, that first Easter, is the defeat of death the defeat of death that one day will actually um, be enforced. And and, and so there's the, in the the defeat of death happened on the first Easter, but one day, as N.T. Wright says, God will do for the cosmos what he has done for Jesus on that first Easter. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 says it in the future tense, then death will be swallowed up in victory when Christ returns and reigns until every enemy is put under his feet. Uh, Revelation 21, then every tree will be wiped away and, and you know death will be no more. So that, in our metaphor, that's a little bit like the parent coming to the playground, confronting the bully, driving them out, and then remodeling the playground, saying, you know what, we're going to have a party right here. (laughs) The place that was a place of pain will now be a place of peace. The place that was a place of suffering will now be a place of joy. I mean, that's Revelation 21. The dwelling place of God has come to be with humankind and every tear is wiped away. God is saying, I will remake the very location of your pain and suffering. I will remake it to be a house and a dwelling place of joy man that'll I preach that'll preach
0: that. no like so, we've, so if for any reason other than it'll preach like pastors should re- recapture this view of of the world to come the age to come the joy in in the place of suffering your your newest book um is kind of yeah written in one of the at least one of the most challenging times uh, of my life that I've I've seen and you're you're writing about the resilient pastor and this text is you're, uh, the, the cover says you're exploring the challenges of pastoral ministry mm-hmm. in a rapidly changing world. I guess as, mm-hmm. as you engaged in this, and we've got you know so many dynamics, COVID, mm-hmm. lots of ministry failures, rise of depression, um, mm-hmm. even the last month uh, or so, the Ukraine crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are some of the most shocking challenges of this reach, research you did with with Barna, and what, what what were there certain stats that you were like? Wow, I I knew it was bad, but this this hit me harder than I thought. <laughs> well, so the the book, yeah, it was
1: done in partnership with Barna, and right before the pandemic, uh, David Kinnaman, the president of Barna, approached me, and he said, "Would you like to partner with us to write something about the challenges that are facing pastors in a changing world?" And I got excited because, again, it 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 um, it followed some of the contours of my own research methodology, which is Situational analysis matched with theological reflection. And I I, I like that. I thought this is good. This is this this would be a wonderful partnership and I was honored. And then the pandemic broke out and I thought, man, this is some kind of cruel joke, God. Like I'm hardly qualified for this task, you know? But but uh we realized, we realized, man, maybe this is a, for such a time as this kind of moment. So I outlined eight challenges for facing the pastor, for facing the church. And I'll just name them. For the pastors, the challenge of vocation. What is it we're called to, to be and to do? The challenge of spirituality. How's our own life with God renewed? The challenge of relationships. Like, how do we cultivate meaningful relationships while being in, in leadership? The challenge of credibility. Like, are we trustworthy in our world? And then for the church, the challenge of worship. Why do we even gather together anymore? Boy, did that become a big question. Yeah. It continues to be. The challenge of formation. How do we actually make disciples? The challenge of unity, like how do we preserve the the true unity of of the saints? And then the challenge of mission, what is it the church is called to be and do in the world? So we designed some questions around that and and, uh, uh, the Barna team, you know, they're so brilliant about wording this and phrasing it. It went out to hundreds and hundreds of pastors uh, in late 2020. Uh, Some questions also went out to the general population about attitudes toward the pastor and attitudes toward the church. And then I did some focus groups after we got some of that data back. I did some focus groups with pastors in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. to kind of hear their stories and and have them interact with some of the data. And, And so that's kind of the insight piece. But then the wisdom came from scripture and came from stories in church history. Because you're right, Jeremy, this is one of the more difficult times in our lifetimes, yeah. but thank God it's not one of the most difficult times in yeah. church history. And I say thank God because if 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 He has led His church uh, uh, through that, He can lead us through this moment and we can learn from it. But long setup to answer your question, yeah, no, what, what they stood out to me. Um, I'll name one. Um, the challenge of credibility was kind of one that i was like man that it was a declining a declining number uh y- you know it was like four percent of non-christian adults said they consider that yes absolutely i consider a pastor a trustworthy source of wisdom four percent um even if it's yes somewhat it add an additional 18 percent to that you know so you're talking about 22 percent now christians uh, that's it's a pretty low number who said yes, absolutely. But if you combine it with yes, absolutely, and yes, somewhat, you get to 71%. Which, you know, means on any given Sunday in any given church in America, a third of our people are kind of listening to us and saying, eh, maybe, you know. <laughs> and and I, honestly, Jeremy, I think we've done that to ourselves. I think, we've, I think we've mishandled some of the power and influence and authority we've been entrusted with. Uh, I think it's a great moment for reflection, soul searching. It's a great moment to return to the, to Christ as the source of of true power, and Christ as the definition of how true power should be expressed. You know. So
0: anyway. Yeah, I mean, one of your one of the quotes I wrote down on that credibility. Piece that you write today, America does not want a pastor. We want to hear from entrepreneurs and financial advisors who can save the economy, or from scientists who can tell us how this accursed virus (laughs) spreads or affects us. And if we need a spirituality, it must be personal and pragmatic. Mm -hmm. It has to work for me. Mm -hmm. Like, how might we regain some of that credibility and and trust within kind of larger society? Is that even a, a a goal of, yeah. of pastors as kind of public theologians? Is that still, still a role? There's a lot of questions <laughs> rolled in. Boy, that. they really are. I, I don't know. It, 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 I, I personally think
1: we shouldn't make it our goal to regain credibility in the sense of the public trust. I, 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 I think that's a byproduct of being like Christ, and it might work to regain credibility it might not but the right thing to do is to return to Christ as the source of our authority and I, and I say source because Jeremy when you think of historically you know where did the priest or the pastor gain there? they refer you know the medieval era is sort of this supernatural kind of power bestowed on you to bless the bread and wine then in the 1800s you know post enlightenment stuff the the pastors um authority came from being a learned individual. They were not just literate, but they were highly educated. And so you'd have, you know, like a Jonathan Edwards studying 13 hours a day and you're like, wow, you're an incredibly learned individual. Uh, but as education has um, reached, uh, you know, more and more of the population, that becomes less of a source of power. And so then it became in the size of our institutions, you know, and in, in America, especially that's, oh, wow. You know, the, these giants of a, of a church or a network or whatever. Uh, and then maybe in today's era, it's the, the number of Instagram followers you have. You know, it's like your platform size, not your institution size. And all of those things, there's a measure of validity to them, but just a measure. Uh, the true source of our authority is from, again, abiding in Christ Himself. And when we do that, we actually realize the shape of our authority, and the shape of our authority is meant to be cross-shaped, it's meant to be servant-oriented, it's, it's not from our charisms or gifts or platforms or, or, or institutions or education, it's it's what they said in the book of Acts, wow, these men have
0: been with Jesus,
1: yeah. that's it. Um, I, yeah, as you're,
0: you're saying this, I mean, I'm just picturing a, a number of friends that teach at Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Society, they're right now in Kyiv, like they, the students left, but they felt because they're also all pastors in addition to theologians and they felt like what would be good for them is to stay and serve and those who are stuck right now are the the poorest of the poor those that are you know handicapped differently abled who Mm -hmm. can't leave town and i think what one of them said on a recent podcast that they just felt if they they left um, they couldn't come back and preach to their congregation. And I don't think it's a judgment on those who did. Sure, it's sure, just sure. this idea of, of actually today, maybe that idea of that cruciform life connected yeah. with activism and serving those who are is is still powerful 2,000 years ago, like what Jesus, yeah. when his disciples were wrestling about who gets to sit with you in the age to come mm-hmm. at the best seat, yeah. like what's he do? He humiliates himself. He mm-hmm. He grabs the towel as the host. And mm-hmm. so I'm just, yeah, as you were sharing that, just yeah kind of blown away by that witness of of some some of our fellow brothers in other parts of the world right now that are are physically present with people in their greatest need and it's not not going to get them more instagram followers or a a book deal in this moment it might even literally as you said earlier it may get them killed Mm -hmm. but but they're there to do the jesus stuff and to represent christ to to Mm. atheists to christians to orthodox believers and i i guess yeah that 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 call. I love that what you said. It's like, it's our, our point isn't to gain credibility. Um, our point is to be like Jesus. And, and yeah. from that place, yeah. we gain credibility. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, love your work. I love yeah. everything you're, you're bringing. You're challenging the church in so many ways. Mm. Well, I, I'd love, I, I know we've got a we've got to wrap up here, but I'd love, love kind of one more thought. Like, as you, you think about these these two books you've written the resilient pastor and kind of worship in the world to come like they present a number of challenges Mm. as as you think about those who are pastors or Mm. students of worship or leaders of worship well well those that are listening what would you want to kind of leave them with what what words of challenges or words of challenge or words of hope might you want to leave us with
1: I think that you know there is a link between uh, those two books, and and maybe we stretch one farther back, blessed, broken, given, which is a sort of this sacramental imagination applied to everyday life. Uh, I think the link between all three is is the power and presence of God, um, and and at the, the the final chapter of the resilient pastor is called the presence and the power, and you know we it's been described our our current age has been described as sort of this 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 world that has a canopy over it that imagines like let's just focus on the pragmatic questions of life and how life works and what works for you and me you even read that quote about a spirituality that's pragmatic you know and so there's a sort of like this canopy over the heavens and yeah there might be a god out there somewhere uh but golly we don't need to worry about it because what does it matter anyway and so agree to disagree or or to not have faith or have faith doesn't matter and it's not it's not militant atheism it's indifferent agnosticism that kind of is the plague of our western world and i think that is exactly why worship leaders pastors people who are followers of jesus we can pierce the canopy by saying, no, 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 there is a God who made this, there is a God who entered into this, His name is Jesus, there is a God who is active within this world, it's the Holy Spirit, and and as we think about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian God who is active and involved in His world, We can think of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven, not just heaven, and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, and lo, I am with you always. And of course, he is with us via the Spirit. So I would say wherever you are, whatever you're leading, remember that Christ is with you through the Spirit. And then in whatever, in as much as you have influence, find ways to welcome the work of the Spirit. I actually believe music is one of the most powerful ways to to make cracks in the canopy. So welcome in the the presence of God. But I think there's other ways. There's good storytelling, there's art, there's beauty, there's coming along, there's the ministry of presence when people are grieving, there's the hope of resurrection we've been talking about. But all of those are ways of saying, this sort of closed frame world under the canopy of all we know is what we can see and, and, and control, We're there to sort of blow that apart or at least make them second-guess it and say, but what if there's
0: more? Beautiful. What a treat to have you, Glenn. You're a legend. Let's do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Worship Theology Podcast, where we are bridging the intersection of faith and ministry praxis. Um, Special thanks to the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship for their support of this project.